Good evening. Well, Terry's out of town in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Everybody else is on vacation. So they went way down the bench and asked me if I would teach tonight. So I'm glad to be here with you uh, on this, uh, in this rain, wonderful. I say to people every once in a while when they are griping about rain or something like that in the summertime, I say, you're not from Oklahoma, are you? Because <laughs> if you were, <clears throat> you wouldn't mind this at all. Well, this uh, theme that uh, has been uh, the topic for the last several weeks, uh, the message that transformed the world, as you may know, as you know, is the book of Romans. And uh, Paul's great uh, theological and biblical uh, treatise about the Christian life, how to be in right relationship with God. We're going to deal with that tonight, and uh, we're going to deal specifically, I had a couple of my friends laugh a little bit, they know me, but we're really going to do this. We're going to deal with chapters 7 and 8 tonight. Stop that. <clears throat> We're going to deal with chapter. I can do this. I, I, I can do this. I, I've been practicing. I've been uh, working on that. You'll notice on your outline there, there is a, a way for you, if you are interested in um, uh, asking a question, on the top there, it's uh, Socrative.com. Uh, <clears throat> log in there, and then you go to where it says student. Uh, log in. Uh, you're the student. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't require any information. Just uh, uh, where it says student login. And all you have to put in is the room number, 50168. And uh, that's the number of my room uh, that we'll be using. And if you have a question, I will see as uh, time goes uh, how we uh, might uh, be able to answer some of those or look at some of those. And uh, we'll uh, <clears throat> do our best. Uh, if not, I'll hang around uh, or uh, we can. I can... Uh, email back and forth on some of this stuff. Anyway, let's pray as we begin and ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to guide our thinking. Lord Jesus, it is with hearts that are open to you, to your word, to the leadership of your spirit that we pause and ask that you would guide our understanding and thinking and our attentiveness uh, to the word of God, to the scriptures here that you have given to us. We pray that our minds will be alert, our hearts will be open, and our wills will be engaged as we study tonight. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, you know, this assertion about <clears throat> the message that uh, transformed the world, uh, I, I want to I tell you a little bit about that. There's a couple of things here I want you to look at. There, there, there are some people that this message radically changed their life. They, you probably know who this is. This is John Christostom, uh, the great church father. I, you know, you probably got a picture of him in your house somewhere. Uh, Christostom was one of the first or second generation Christians who had come under the ministry even of people like John the Apostle. Christostom thought so much of the book of Romans. He had it, I guess when you get up there and be one of those church fathers, he had it read to him twice a week. Somebody, I guess, you know, some small uh, uh, theological student or something, but he had it read to him at least uh, twice a week. And a Christostom, if you study church history or you study the church fathers, was called Golden Mouth a great orator, uh, wrote uh, many uh, treatises, and lots of people continue to read those. So John Christostom. Uh, this is another person <clears throat> uh, you know by the name on the picture. It's St. Augustine, or if you're from Britain, Augustine, uh, if you're uh, from that part of the world. St. Augustine, who was in the third century, uh, the great church father from northern Africa, was a rather, uh, before he became a follower of Jesus, lived a pretty desperately wicked life. And uh, one day, <clears throat> uh, after his mother had prayed for him for a long time, uh, one day heard the words, take up and read. 
And uh, the book of Romans was open uh, there in the 14th chapter, and he began to read it, and he, con- and he con- communicates that, that that, if you will, was uh, what brought him to Jesus Christ, was the book of Romans, a uh, great church father. Uh, Martin Luther, <clears throat> uh, some of you may have heard of him a little more uh, in the 1500s, uh, who had been a Roman Catholic uh, monk, priest. Uh, Luther uh, is famous uh, for his uh, work in the Reformation of attempting to reform uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Luther's life was one of uh, incredible piety. Luther used to sleep at night without any cover. And at the top of his cell was a picture painted of hell to remind him of his need to be in right relationship with God. Uh, He was a fairly intense guy. Luther's life was radically changed as he began to study the book of Romans. A famous story, uh, he had gone to Rome uh, as all Roman Catholics at that point would want to go. And uh, there was the idea that there were certain things he did in Rome that if he did them, that uh, that would communicate grace to him or uh, forgive his sins. And the story is that in Rome, still there, the uh, uh, Scalia Sancta, the, the holy stairs is what you call them, the Sancta Scalia, or Scalia Sancta, or you say Sancta, I, I don't know, anyway, so... <clears throat> Uh, there were 28 steps that you went up on your knees and you prayed every step. And the idea was that by doing that, you you received special dispensation of forgiveness for your sin. This is how serious Luther was. He'd gone all the way from Germany to, to, to Rome, and as he is going up the stairs on his knees praying, the words out of Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, reverberated in his mind as he had been studying it And the story goes that Luther stood up on those stairs and walked down, and the Reformation began. Uh, What an incredible moment for him to get that. He experienced that, and uh, uh, his life was radically changed, as you may know, uh, in the Protestant Reformation. Another guy that that he influenced was John Wesley. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. That's John Wesley. I get those guys mixed up. John Wesley Harden... And John, yeah, John, he was a gunman that killed a bunch of people in Texas. I, I, but I get him mixed up. No, not really. John Wesley. This is John Wesley and Becky, my wife. <laughs> uh, he's been a friend for many years. And uh, we were at Asbury Seminary uh, this summer. And John Wesley, uh, this is actually a life-size a statue of him. He was a little guy. Uh, rode a horse over 200,000 miles. Uh, not at one time, uh, over his lifetime and preached uh, 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 an average for 60 years of about three times a day. Uh, John Wesley's life was also radically transformed uh, by by the book of Romans. Wesley was an Anglican priest who studied and worked hard to live for Jesus, came to Georgia to uh, work with uh, the American Native Americans and had a disastrous experience here, went back uh, to, to, uh, to England in a ship uh, was involved in a huge uh, shipwreck or a, or a big, uh, not a shipwreck, but a, but a big storm and was just scared out of his brains. He wrote in his journal, I went to America to save the Indians. Who will save me? Uh, now, he'd been a priest in the Anglican church. He went to the jails every weekend, gave over half of his income, uh, if you will, to the poor and was, was very engaged but did not have the assurance that he was in right relationship with God. And the book of Romans, on May 24, 1738, uh, one evening at Fetters Lane in London, 
Wesley heard, which is interesting. Uh, we go back here just a minute. I am technologically advanced here, I think. Whoops. See? When, when, when Wesley heard the preface to the book of Romans by Martin Luther, it was just being read. When Wesley heard the preface to the book of Romans by Mar that Martin Luther had written, uh, Wesley said at that moment, my heart was strangely warmed. If you're from a Methodist background or you have any friends that you know, that's almost like the Holy Grail. That Wesley recounted that moment that, that, the, that he had finally come to a peace and assurance that he was in right relationship with God. And then finally, uh, this last person, Karl Barth, uh, you may or may not have heard of him. Karl Barth is one of the great theologians of the 20th century. had been trained in very radical and liberal theology, a Swiss theologian who, after World War I and seeing... All of the things that had happened began to study the book of Romans. And his commentary on the book of Romans started a revival, if you will, in the latter part of the 20th century for people to really believe that the Bible uh, is true. And so Bart's life was radically, one, one person called it a bombshell in the world. Now, for all of these reasons, these people's lives have been changed. I, I can tell you this. At Mid-America Christian University, where I teach, uh, some years ago, we decided, we have about 2,500, 2,800 students now, online, on campus, under their cars, you know, they're all over the place, but, you know, uh, we have about 2,500, that we require every student at Mid-America Christian University to take the Book of Romans. We believe that the systematic presentation of the gospel found in Romans, like in no other book, is the message that will transform their world. And so every student at Mid-America Christian University has to go through that, whether they're a business major, doesn't matter, ministry major. So I believe, and I think you can see that there are these examples, if you will, of a people whose lives were absolutely changed by the book of Romans. Now, tonight, I want to really focus on this. Uh, not really. I, I'm so uh, technologically challenged. I, if any of you are really perceptive here, you'll notice. I tried to make a screenshot off of my computer while my PowerPoint slides were open. <laughs> And that's the best I can do. <laughs> that's all I got. Uh, I want to look at Romans 7 and 8. Now, tonight, I'm probably not going to answer every question you have. But what I'm going to attempt to do is how this message transformed in what I call some big picture, big thematic understandings of these two chapters. And, and, the, re and, and the reason I have this is this. Uh, sometimes it's more important to begin with a bigger picture. This one. My, my favorite restaurant in the whole world is right here. Papado's Seafood Kitchen in Dallas. You know, I, I, I cannot pass it. Uh, we got to stop. Uh, but when you look at this, unless you really know Dallas, you can see over here, this is I-35 East and the Stemmons, and there's Lombard Lane. But unless you really understand Dallas, you're going to have to do something to this map. And that means you're going to have to expand it out. Now, again, I told you the limits to my technological ability. I didn't even try that, okay? This is as far as I went. But do you see how you might still not know how to get to that place if you don't know a lot about Dallas? Because what? The, the focus is too small. It's too narrow. It's too close. What you need is the larger, more expansive view, if you will, of the map to orient yourself and to know where you are. That's what we're going to do tonight in two chapters. Now, I know, you know, we're not going to go through every verse. We're going to go through it in, in large sections. But the big picture here I want us to have has to do with this. 
And that's the first thing on your your, uh, outline, is that the book of Romans transformed the world as it revealed the failure of the law to deal with sin. And the issue here is legalism. Now, I'm going to play my hand just a little bit on both of these. Uh, uh, Chapter 7 and chapter 8 both deal with huge issues. And I want to suggest to you that the two issues that the book of Romans 7 and 8 deal with are these two. And we'll, we'll come again. One of them is legalism. Legalism is the attempt to think that I can do enough or have enough things that I can do that I can be right with God. And it is particularly, I wouldn't say, a Jewish tendency as much as I think it is a human tendency. That humans have this tendency to try to calibrate, to, to judge, to court, to, you know, to pull together and say, okay, I've done this and this and this, therefore I'm okay. And legalism is something we're going to look at here in a moment as it relates to the seventh chapter of Romans. It's a huge issue, and it may be something that will be new to you as we look at it. In chapter 8, however, there is another tendency, and I'll give it to you later, but let me just say it briefly. The other tendency that this message deals with is just the polar opposite, which human beings usually do. If we're not going to be legalists, then we're going to just be lawbreakers. And there's a word here that theologians use called antinomianism. A-N-T, it's on your handout later. Antinomianism. Antinomianism is the idea that because I'm under the grace of God and the love of God, it really doesn't matter how I live. And the gospel attempts to address both of those. In fact, I've said this. If you're over 50 or 45 or somewhere in there, and I'm over 45, you know, somewhere in there, you, and, you probably wrestle with the issue of legalism. But I want to suggest to you, my t- teaching and training over the years said this to me. Nobody under 40 is dealing with legalism. Not in America. Nobody under 40 is dealing with legalism. And that's why tonight I want to deal with both these issues. Because they're both critical. If you're over 40 or 45... Your tradition and the way you came up, you probably wrestle with legalism. On the other hand, if you're under 40 or you're 35 in that area, my guess is having talked to students for over 23 years of dealing with people at a younger age, legalism is not their issue. Antinomianism is their issue. It doesn't matter how I live that much because we've been all raised on grace. We'll look at that. So let's look at Romans chapter 7 here real quick. We're going to run through this. Paul's argument after having discussed the matter, should Christians continue to sin because they're under grace? No, that's the answer. Look back at chapter 6, if you will. In Romans chapter 6, the question is, do we continue to sin because we're under grace? 6-1, the answer is no. The second question in chapter 6 is chapter 6, verse 15. This all sets up chapter 7. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? And the answer is no. So the two big questions in 6 is do we sin because we're under grace and it doesn't matter? That's antinomianism. Or do we sin? Do we not, do we not worry about sin? Do we keep sinning because we're not under the law? That's legalism. That's what sets up chapter 7. Look at verse se- chapter 7, verse 1, if you will read with me. Or do you not know, brethren, I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over one as long as he lives. 
for a married man. And then Paul from verses 2 to 3 goes through an, an analogy that a woman is, mar- is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. And then if he dies, she's free. Now, remember that Paul has already argued in chapter 7 that somebody died. Who is that? We did. He said, as many as of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death that you might rise to newness of life. So Paul begins by saying, look, I'm talking to people who know the law. You know the law. It has jurisdiction only until someone dies. Paul has asserted, if you will, that in fact, the fact of the matter is that you and I as followers of Jesus have died with Christ in the old man. Wish I had some more time in that, but we'll do that. So he says that, that the law has limited jurisdiction. It does not have overall jurisdiction. Then look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, underline that, the sinful passions were what? Aroused by the law. We were, that were at work, our body, but now, verse 6, you've been released from the law, having died to that which you were bound, so that you might serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let me tell you something that Paul is saying here is this. The law has limited jurisdiction. You're out from under it. And his whole assertion is this, which I, I just have to tell you, most people have a different view on this. But I think I can show you here that this is clearly it. That the real problem with the law and what Paul is dealing with in chapter 7 is the law's inability to deal with sin. Notice what he said. I'm writing to people who know the law. I gave you an analogy about the law. It's, law has authority over a woman as long as her husband's alive. And when he's dead, she's free. And you, he says, are now free. You know the fascinating thing about Paul here in 7-4 and throughout this? Most people read in chapter 6 that sin shall no longer have dominion over you because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. I can tell you this, in 30 years of teaching, most people have said to me, when I ask, what does that mean? They say, well, it means this, that sin doesn't have dominion over me because if I sin now, I'm under grace and I'm covered. That's not what it means at all. What it means is this. The reason sin can't have dominion over you is because you're not under the law anymore. Look at verse 4. Because what does the law do? I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah. Verse 5. What does the law do to sin? It arouses it. See, the law doesn't stop sin. It arouses it. That's what he says there, isn't it? For while you were in the flesh, the sinful passions which you had were aroused by the law. Paul doesn't see the law being out from under the law as, a, as an opportunity now that I can sin and live in order. He's saying, now that you're out from under the law, you're not aroused to sin like you were. 
Think about this. I don't know if you've read this lately, but, but if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul makes this great statement about the resurrection, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? I'm reading in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? And oh, grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Listen to me. The problem in seven is the law. It cannot deal with sin. Now, sometimes we come to Romans 7 to find out why I'm acting the way I'm acting. That's not what's under consideration here. Paul's not trying to give us an explanation of what, you know, the good I want to do, I can. We're going to live to that. That's not what this is about. This is about understanding that the law is the problem. It arouses sin, and that's why when you're in Jesus Christ, you're out from under the law, not as a get-out-of-jail card free, not now I can live any way I want to live, as a matter of that sin now has been dealt with. I know that sounds crazy, but it arouses sin. Now watch this, in chapter 7. So he's made these kind of introductory st statements about the law. There are two big questions. I don't think I have them on. Maybe I do here. There are two. Yeah, there are. Here we go. There are two big questions in Romans 7. Is the law sin? See there in verse 7? And the answer is no. In other words, it's Paul saying, look, we've been under the law for 2,000 years, and now you're saying we're out from under it, and it's the thing that arouses sin. Well, is the law sin? That's a logical question, isn't it? No, it's not, he's saying. He's, no, the, 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 the law is not sin, but it arouses it. It wakes it up. You've seen this in a toddler, haven't you? G.K. Chesterton used to say that the only theological truth that is empirically uh, provable in a toddler is the carnal nature. <laughs> you tell a kid not to do something, what do they want to do? <laughs> they suddenly now want to, right? Tell me not to do it and I want to do it. It's, it, it's that kind of arousal. So Paul says, is the law sin? Does the, does the law actually cause sin? No, no. He's saying it does not. And then he goes, he said, I would not have known what, the, what sin was. If it wasn't for the law. Look at it, verse 7. May and every on the contrary would not have known what sin was, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting, set apart from the law, or, or uh, the coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, look at that, sin is what? Dead. See, this, this is a, a new idea to a lot of people. The thing that is causing trouble is creating arousal for sin is the law. Not a sinful nature, not a, not a, not a, a matter like that. It, it, it's, it's the law. Now, remember, when Paul makes these kind of statements, uh, I'm, I'm a little excitable, so I'm getting a little warm up here. In these, but uh, this is why the Jews wanted to kill him. Remember that? They were not interested in just bugging him. They wanted to kill him. Because he was saying, the problem is the law. The problem is the law. It arouses sin. The only way you and I can be free of it, of sin, is to be out from under the law. Because it's the power. 
of sin. That's what Paul has said right here. That's the first thing. Now the second one. Whoops, did I already go there? There, I fooled myself, didn't I? Here we go. Anybody building an ark? (laughs) The next question, is the law what caused death in me? Verse 13. So you'll you'll notice here that the questions in chapter 7 are not really about why do I live the way I do and why have I got so many problems. The the questions are about the law. The the law. Now, Now why is that? I don't know if you know this or not, but in Judaism, there is no doctrine of original sin. People are born in, Jude- in, in rabbinical theology. People are thought to be born neutral. In fact, uh, people have what they call an ahav yetzer. It's a bad impulse. Yetzer is the word for impulse or drive. They're born with a bad impulse. And they're born with a tov yetzer, or a good impulse. And so life is lived with sin between trying to respond to one or the other. Here's the fascinating backstory of Romans 7 that you might need to know is this. The Jews believed that God gave them something that broke the balance of power. That this Ahav Yetzer and Tov Yetzer that were in constant conflict, working back and forth, constantly dealing with sin, God gave them something to break the balance of power. Guess what that was? The law. And Paul is saying, the thing you think that will bring victory to you over sin, it is what is inciting it. The thing that you thought would bring you victory is what is actually inciting sin in your life. That's astounding. That's, again, why they wanted to kill him. Because he was saying, the problem here, folks, is the law. Now, what's he trying to do? He's trying to break them away from their adherence to law to depend and rely on Jesus. Now let's look here, and we'll read this. He said, for I know, uh, verse 14, for we know the law is good, but I am in the flesh sold into the bondage of sin. For I'm doing what I don't understand. For I am practicing what I would not like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, all these questions are stated, but if I do the very thing I don't want to do, verse 16, I agree the law is good, and it's conforming to goodness. Verse 70, so now no longer I'm the one, but it's sin which dwells within me. For I know that in me nothing good dwells, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing is not. For the good that I want to do, I do, I practice, but the very evil I don't want to do, I end up doing. Now, now here's the great question, always in this passage. Remember, the question under consideration is, what is the role and jurisdiction of the law? What can it do? And Paul has said, up to this point, it creates, it arouses, it aggravates sin. So Paul is saying, okay, so then is that the problem? Is it it that there's something wrong with me or some kind of situation here? Most people look at this and say, Paul changes into what we call the present tense. You know, the good that I want to do. Have you ever heard this before? So this is Paul's present experience. And there are all kinds of arguments 
of people saying, this is Paul when he was a Christian. This is Paul before he was a Christian. This is Paul's hypothetical discussion about existence. I, I want to suggest to you there is a, my, my read on this. If you say that the present tense, you know, the good that I want to do and the thing that I don't want to do, it's what we call the simple present tense. You have to be a little more careful than that. In Greek, there are several. There's the nomic, there's the nomic present, which is usually that something's happening at, to, to focus on the present action. There's the simple present where it's just stating something that's happening and it keeps happening. But you know, if you look in your Bible, sometimes in the front of it, you'll notice in the gospel sometimes when Jesus is recorded as saying something that there's an asterisk by it. And it's called the historic present. It's in Greek called the historic present. And it means this. Something that has happened in the past that is placed in the present tense to intensify the discussion. I, I've done that before, you know. Uh, I could use, say it this way. When Becky and I are on vacation, we're driving down the road, and she says, how fast are you going? And I said, what's that up to you? you know? I, I'm telling the story as, I'm saying, we're driving down the road, and as we're driving, looking over here and drinking an ale and having a donut, and we're having a, why? Because I want you to kind of get into the moment, right? To say that this is Paul's present experience only because of the use of the present tense is to deny an understanding of what Paul seems to really be going at. Paul is talking about his life under the law. As a person who did everything that they could under the law. And as a consequence, the president, I wrote my notes, I'd say it this way. If this is Paul's experience, I'll just say it this way. If this is Paul's present experience, after what he said in 6, that sin shall no longer have dominion over you because you're no longer under the law. If he says in 7, you died to the law and you no longer live under it, but you now live in newness of life. One of two things is going on here. One, at best, Paul is contradicting himself. Two, he's schizophrenic. <laughs> you can't make those kind of statements in the passage of about 17 verses without coming to some conclusion to say, Paul, is it true? We're not, when it says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Does this sound like dominion? <laughs> Does this sound like freedom? Does he say, you know, the good I want to do, I can, and the, the thing that I can't do, I, 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 I think that I want to do, I can, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up, does that sound like freedom? Doesn't to me. And if you're reading, and I've told my students before this, if you read Romans, you have to read 6, 7, and 8 together. They're a unit. So to just simply say that, that, well, it's the simple present, and that's Paul's experience, I think you have major problems with both the content of Romans 7 and how it's situated in 7 and 8. Let me show you one other thing here. I think that what Paul is trying to do is to show that this legalism, this attempt to deal with sin based on law is futile. It's futile. I'll just raise, you can underline this if you want to, take a look at it. It says here in verse 14, for I know that in my, in the, 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 the law is spiritual, but I'm in the flesh. For what I want to do, I don't understand. 
you might underline that word. Just I'm going to come back to it. I don't understand what I'm doing. Verse 16, but the very thing that I don't want to do, you might underline that, want to do. Verse 18, for I know that nothing in me dwells that in my flesh, for the willing is present. That's the same idea, want and willing. And then finally down in verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. I think that Paul is, as a brilliant scholar and writer, is pulling this thing down to the end to say, you can't deal with sin based on law, no matter how hard you try. Anybody grow up in a church like I did that the answer to your problem was try harder? How'd that work for you? <laughs> try harder? Try harder is not the answer. If I've got this right, what Paul has done has taken human personality apart and said, I don't understand what I'm doing. That's the mind. I'm doing what I don't want to do. That's the will. I'm unwilling, but I can't stop it. And lastly, I joyfully concur. I, I, I believe this with all my heart. That's the emotions. Legalism will try to get you to use your mind. If you just learn more, you could deal with this sin problem. You just need to go to more Bible studies, right? Like tonight, you know, you'll, you'll be able to handle sin tonight and after this. <laughs> you, 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 need, you need to have more knowledge. It doesn't hurt, but it won't deal with sin. Uh, well, what you need is you need to try harder. <laughs> you need to have a stronger will. You, you, you need to be saying, I'm not going to do that. I refuse to do that, and I'm going to will it. How's that working for you? <laughs> you know, always the problem with the legalist is both when they succeed and they fail. When they fail, they're despairing, and when they succeed, they're proud. <laughs> they're, they're really both bad deals. So you try harder. Or, lastly, you just try to get emotional about it. If I could just get the right emotions, if I could just have more emotions, if I could just feel closer to God, if I, if I could just feel excitement. And Paul says, all of those are no answer. Because the law and legalism cannot deal with sin. Now, for some of us, maybe that's good news. I'm not here to tell you to try harder. That's a dead end. I'm not here to give you a new six steps to spiritual maturity. I always used to laugh at that. You know, people say four steps to raising wonderful children. I thought, there's only four? <laughs> wow, I thought there was like 66. See, that's law. Learn more. Will more. Feel more. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. Yet legalism attempts to say, if you would just try harder you could deal with this. Paul is saying this, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just be as clear as I can. What Romans 7 is about is not what is the Christian life about. What Romans 7 is, is the failure of the law to deal with sin. People ask me all the time, is this possible for a Christian? And I say, yes, but it isn't normal. It is possible because we get into this legalism of if I could learn more, try harder, and feel better, I could deal with this. 
It is not normal, however. It is not Paul's experience as a follower of Jesus. Let me show you why. We're going to go to chapter 8 now. And this chapter deals with this, the, the, the flip side of this. Antinomianism. The book of Romans transformed the world as it revealed the provision of the Holy Spirit as the power for living the Christian life. The issue of antinomianism. Romans 8. This is the clincher now, if, if, if I've got this right. Chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Where was that? Chapter 7. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Watch this now. This ought to be underlined your Bible. And what the law could not do. What could the law not do? Couldn't deal with sin. What was it the law? He's already shown it to us. What is it the law could not do? Deal with sin. God did, watch here, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's the kicker. Paul is pulling his argument together saying, look, what, what the law couldn't do. I, I, I want to make sure if you're hung up on legalism, if, if you think it's trying harder, if you think it's just seven steps to this or seven steps, listen, you are absolutely on the wrong end of this deal because the law can't deal with sin and it will make you a miserable wretch because you'll just keep trying. Now, on the flip side of that, Paul addresses this issue. There's this other issue about the Christian life of people that have such a hyper understanding of grace, as he said back in chapter 6, because we're under grace now, why don't we just go ahead and sin that grace may abound? See, that's the notion of antinomianism. Antinomianism is a doctrine or theology, the idea that I can break the law and it's still okay because I'm under God's grace. You can't read Romans 6 and 8 and come away with that. So Paul says this, For the law, what it could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God sent his Son, verse 4, so that, now watch this, this is really interesting, so that the requirement of the law might what? Be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, Paul said, the law can't deal with sin, but walking and living in the Spirit causes us to fulfill, to pull up to the full, the Greek word there means to fill up, to overflowing the righteous fulfillment of the law. Isn't that interesting? 
You know, people say, well, I'm not under the law. Listen, again, if you're saying that, mean this. Don't, I'm not under the law. If you mean that, that I am no longer under its power to incite sin, I'm with you. If you say you're not under the law, that you have the freedom now to break it, you've completely misunderstood Paul. You've completely misunderstood him. If you're saying, again, I'm not under the law, and by that I'm free to walk and live in the Spirit, that's the truth. But most people, like my dad, one day, some years ago, got pulled over by a police officer for speeding. And my dad said, I'm a pastor. Which I thought, Dad, why did you tell him that? <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm not under the law. <laughs> well, yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. See, my dad was in antinomianism. He thought, because I'm under grace, it doesn't matter. And I want to suggest to you, this is the unique issue that people in America are dealing with today that have grown up in the last 25 or 30 years. I see it all the time. I had a conversation with some leaders at our church just a few weeks ago, a few days ago, that said the antinomian spirit of because I'm under grace, I can kind of get away with whatever I want is rampant and alive. I see it in college students every day who have no awareness at all of what this life looks like. So the book of Romans transforms by it revealing the provision of the Holy Spirit. So let's look here, if we will, this matter of chapter 8. Paul suggests that what is now available is not life under the law, but the life of the, uh, well, he calls it, but the law of the Spirit. Of, isn't that interesting how he says that? He said the law is no longer your jurisdiction. There's a new law in town. What is it? The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's look at that here for a second. The, the word spirit or the Holy Spirit. You, you, you probably know this, but, but the word spirit, pneuma, is uh, the, that or, or, or the word ruach in the Old Testament. It often uh, can be translated breath or wind or spirit. You know, uh, our problem is that sometimes we don't... Well, let me back up. The word spirit here, by the way, in verses 2 to 27 shows up 18 times. 18 times, spirit. In Romans 7, the word I shows up 40. I can't do what I want to do. The things that I do, I don't understand. It's a huge contrast. In 7, it's about I, and you probably know this, but the Greek word for I is ego or ego, it's not a muffin, muffin, it's, it's ego. And the word in eight is spirit. The word I never shows up again. It's life in the spirit. And so it's the idea that God comes now to give us the breath of life. I think this is intentional. In the Old Testament, when God creates human beings, he forms them, he makes them physical. When do they become living beings? When he breathes into them, the ruach, it's the same word, the spirit. When the ruach Elohim, when the spirit of God is breathing, they become a living being. 
What if you thought about life in the spirit this way? It was you breathing the breath of God. That you were depending upon him to breathe his breath in you. His life in you. You see, Romans 7 ought to make us just put the thing down and say, I can't do this. The law won't help me. I've, I've, I've got to have the breath of God. I've got a couple of friends that are doctors, and we've always thought about this kind of idea that when people are injured seriously and uh, are having all kinds of problems, sometimes they put them on a ventilator. And if you've seen that before, it's a big, long tube, you know, they stick it down you and it, it breathes for you. Most doctors tell me that they, they eventually have to medicate the person who's on the ventilator because they do something docs call buck the vent. And I, what does that mean? They say it means they try to decide when they're going to breathe. And they breathe and then the ventilator breathes. And it gets in between and now they're bucking it. Now they're fighting the ventilator. The most unnatural thing, they say, for people to do is to rest and believe that that ventilator is going to breathe for them. I've wondered about that, about life in the Spirit. Have you come to the point that you're convinced that you've got to have the breath of God to live? To where you say, breathe in me, breath of God. God. Have you come to the place? Are you still enough full of yourself? That, that's where the problem is for all of us. That instead of allowing the breath of God to breathe his life in us, we're busy trying to do our own breathing. We're busy trying to figure this out on our own. And I, I've come to the conclusion at some point, somewhere, that the fact of the matter is that if I can surrender my breathing to the Spirit of God to say, breathe in me, O breath of God, and get out of the way, it's a miraculous thing that begins to happen. You'll also notice here, and I'm going to try to hurry. I've got a few more minutes here. Uh, notice here, uh, verse 5. Well, let me back up verse 4. So that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, you'll notice in verses 5 on down to about 413, the word flesh and spirit are in constant conflict, are contrasted. Now, the word flesh, sarkos or, or sarki, has three different meanings, real quick. One is it just means to be human. And that's the word that's used of Jesus in, in, in Romans here, 1, 3, when he says, he was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's just being human. There's nothing wrong with that. It says there in Romans 1, 3 that Jesus was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Second of all, flesh can sometimes be used for the word limited. It's just limited. Like Jesus, when he was in the flesh, he could only be one place at a time. He could only be, you know, could, could move around. It's the third meaning that generally has the most, and that is a life, uh, or let me back up here. It, it's a life of reliance on anything other than God. 
That's what the flesh is. It's a life of reliance upon anything other than God. It can be religion. It can be your good effort. It can be anything. See, the, the, the word spirit or letting God's breath breathe in us. This is where God has to have a surrender to him. That we're not trusting in anything other than him. We're relying on him. We're depending on him for the very breath that we breathe. That's the idea of the flesh. It's anything, if you will, that would be depending on other than Jesus. I led a Bible study day at noon and was talking to some guys about this particular idea about that, uh, you know, I, I was trained in evangelism explosion some years ago. Maybe some of y'all were, you ever heard of that? And, you know, we would go visit people and after four minutes of chit-chat, we'd ask, like, if you were to die, you know, you'd go to heaven. I always thought that was a little intrusive, you know, <laughs> like, you don't, we don't know each other, but I'm going to, if you're dead, you know. Um, and I was trained that that if we asked that question, if you were to die tonight, you know, go to heaven. If somebody said, yes, I'd go to heaven, we were all so nervous. Oh, great, hallelujah, wonderful, see ya. Uh, we're going to find somebody else. We were trained to ask a follow-up question. And that question was this. Hey, great, let me ask you this question. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before St. Peter, if he's there, you know, at the gate, I don't know. And he were to ask you this, how would you answer this question? Why? Should I let you into heaven? Whatever comes out of that person's mouth is what they're really trusting. And I was trained, if they said baptism, get after it. If they said, I've been trying to live a good life, get after it. If I'd say, I've quit some bad habits and I'm doing better, get after it. If it isn't, I'm trusting and depending upon the finished work of Jesus Christ in my behalf and relying upon him, surrendered to him, go after it. You see, it's easy, isn't it, for us to trust other things or other realities instead of trusting in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to hurry here, and I'm going to give you some markers if you want to on this. If you want to say, look, I want to be careful, Cliff, that I haven't taken this idea about being out from under the law in the opposite direction where Paul did. That I'm thinking that, well, I can kind of do and live however I want to. I'm not saying anybody would think that here. I'm just suggesting this idea. Let me give you some markers, and I'm going to run through chapter 8 here as best I can, about what life in the Spirit looks like. What is life in the... You know, that sounds kind of spooky, you know. We always talk about that, and you say, oh, Cliff, that sounds kind of weird. I know. What does life in the Spirit look like? I'm going to give several here. Number one, I would say this. It's a life of fulfilling the law, verses 2 to 4. It's a life that fulfills the requirements of the law. Following Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, living in the Spirit, does not mean you're going to break the law. I'm not saying you don't ever fail. I'm not suggesting there are other issues we have to deal with later. What I'm suggesting is Paul is giving us a template or a look at what does life in the Spirit look like? Two to four. Number two, a life where one's mind is set on the Spirit. Verses five to eight. You can read that there. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
So another marker would be that would mitigate against this antinomianism is that our minds are set on the Spirit. We look to the Spirit. We depend upon the Spirit. We rely upon the Spirit. Our mind is focused. Number three, a life not in the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the body. Look at verse 9, 9 to 13. A life in the Spirit is a life of putting to death the deeds of the body. It says there, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit, he's none of his. If Christ is in you through the body, is dead because of sin. He is alive because of righteousness. So then, brethren, verse 12, we're under no obligation to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So what does that look like, Cliff? It means through the power of the Spirit, the deeds of the flesh are being put to death. They're being destroyed. Now you say, well, man, this sounds crazy. I'm just telling you what Paul's saying here. Okay? This is what I'm saying, that if you don't read Romans 6, 7, and 8 in a unit, we get all this stuff peeled. It's kind of like looking at that map, Pepidos. You won't really find your way. You've got to see this all. So Paul is saying it's a life of putting those deeds of the flesh to death. Four, verses 14 and 15. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption where we call Abba, Father. So the other marker is it's a life of being led by the Spirit. I say to my students sometimes, you know, they say, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I say, well, are you being led by the Spirit? Because Paul says, whoever is led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. It, it, it's not just what you say. It's are you being led? Is your life being led and guided? So another mark would be led by, number five, another one in 16 and 17 where it would be a life of assurance. Notice where it says there, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children and heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. That, that one of the markers is that there's this assurance that comes to us. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Now, I want to say something here. Real, I know people get beat up on this. Notice the preposition with our spirit. I think the Scripture's teaching here that, that God is attempting to witness with our spirit. But I'm going to tell you, I've been a pastor and a professor at a university long enough to know this. There are people whose spirits are broken. They're destroyed and beaten up by shame. And if I asked them tonight and said, has the spirit borne witness to you that you're a child of God? They would say, I don't think so. You know people like that? They struggle with this. You see, this isn't a, just a one-way street here. I know people, this is the fascinating thing for me. I've met people who have the assurance of salvation who, it, you may say, this sounds terrible, Cliff. I know it does. I'm talking. Okay, finish a sentence. Here we go. That I know people who have all kinds of assurance of salvation that I would simply say they have no reason to. Have you met people like that? This assurance thing isn't a, a, a thing that seems to be that easy. I, I've got people in my family 
who have all of the assurance in the world that they're going to heaven and they bear no fruit that that will ever be true. Yet I've met other people whose lives bore all kinds of fruit and love for Jesus that struggled with a sense of assurance. I love what John Wesley said. He said this, Assurance is the birthright of every child of God. But you're not saved by assurance. You're saved by faith. Did you get that? You're not saved by assurance. You're saved by faith. But one of the things of walking in the Spirit that we could begin to believe and begin to hope and begin to expect is that we would have this assurance from the Spirit that we're His children. Another marker. A, weak, a life where weakness is counterbalanced by the Spirit. I wish I had time. In verses 18 to 27. In verses 18, Paul makes this interesting thing. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly to reveal the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but unwillingly, that the creation itself is set free from the corruption. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. We, we, we look at that and say, you know what? Life in the Spirit doesn't mean we're all translated to heaven. We still live in a fallen world. Look at that. It says, what does the creation do? It groans. Then look at verse 26. In the same way. What way, Paul? What are you talking about? In the same way as what? As creation is groaning, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. I love that. In the same way that the... the, the, the universe is groaning and struggling under this fallenness. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Watch here. Can I get an amen for this? For we don't know how to pray as we ought. Could I get an amen? <laughs> right? I love this word, helps. It says the Holy Spirit helps us. It's a huge, long Greek word. And it means this, to be with us on the other end of a problem lifting the rest of the weight. It is with us. He, the Holy Spirit is with us on the other end of a problem, lifting the rest of the weight. He is helping us in our weakness, in our difficulty, in our trouble. And verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Watch this. Because I was talking to somebody the other day when they said, you know, it does, I will tell you this, it doesn't say in this verse that life in the Spirit, that everything that happens is good, okay? Be sure you get that. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. You have to be unconscious to believe that or live in a basement. <laughs> it says that God can cause all things to work together for Our problem is we've already defined what good is. We've defined it as 401k doing better, our kids all born with straight teeth, everything going great, right? You know? Paul didn't let you do that. Paul says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who look. Look at the word, little word in verse 29, for. That word for, that particle, that conjunction, suggests that Paul is now going to give you the answer. 
For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Can I tell you that life in the spirit means this? That if you're walking and living in the spirit, that the good that God is up to is to make you and me look like Jesus. And before you amen that, be real careful. Because Hebrews 5 says that Jesus was heard because of his loud crying and strong tears and was saved because of his great godliness. That's the good God is up to. I know that's confusing to people. They think, well, I followed Jesus and, you know, I lost my job or, you know, my kids are really breaking my heart or my finances are going down the drain. Okay, but I thought this was supposed to be good. You've got to let God define the good. The good that God is up to in life and the spirit is to make you like his son. And that may or may not be fun. That may or may not, even if you will, be easy. So that life in the spirit is that God is for us in the midst of difficulty and trouble. And then, of course, I've got to finish this when Paul makes this statement of this idea. So this is life in the spirit. Are you with me still? i got a minute. I'm, I'm going to hurry, I promise. See, they didn't think I could do this. I had a friend of mine say they'd be praying for me at 9 that I'd be done. No, we're going to get done. Life in the spirit is this life of, the, the, of where our weaknesses are counterbalanced by the Spirit, and it's a life where God is for us, even though everything would be against us. And that's where Paul ends this passage in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written, for your sake, we've been put to death all day long. We consider a sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him. Who loved us. This is what life in the Spirit is like. It's an overcoming life, folks. It doesn't mean you get out. It doesn't mean you get away. He says we're being put to death every day. But it's because of life in the Spirit that we know that we can overcome. I think Paul, more than likely, was dictating this to what we call an amanuensis or a secretary. And I got in my mind's eye that when Paul is in these last verses, he's pacing the floor there in that Mamertine, or the, uh, in, the, in the prison there in uh, Rome. When he says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is life in the spirit. Now, I've blown through that as quickly as I can. I want to really encourage you to go back and look at that. But to say in our hearts and lives that Paul is really attempting to try to deal with two huge problems that have afflicted the church for centuries. One is, in chapter 7, legalism that just keeps trying harder, that keeps working at it, that is a constant drag on people who even have a serious heart for God. And the other great problem that we're facing in America today, I think as we never have, is antinomianism, where people are powerless. They're living their lives out of their head. They're living their lives without any presence or power of the Spirit. And Paul says that's the new power in town. That's the new law that God brings for us. I just commit this to your thought and prayerful consideration as we look at this and this incredible message 
that transformed the world and continues to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a lot of material, and it has a lot to do with the way we live. I pray that in the mighty name of Jesus that you would help all of us as we live, whether, whether it's in the area of legalism that may incite us to try harder, to know that the law and our efforts will not do it, or if it's in antinomianism that may try to get a hold of us and cause us to think that we can sort of live any way we choose. We pray, Lord, that you'd remind us again that what the law could not do, you did through sending your Son, and the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free. Enable us, empower us for your sake and glory, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Ooh.